wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at KBU. Dot .fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Mr. Michael O'Donnell. He is the Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms based in Wolcott, Indiana. It's a large-scale diversified organic grain farming operation. He is also the Regenerative Agriculture Coordinator for the Diverse Corn Belt Project in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University. That is a USDA-funded multidisciplinary project to bring together agricultural stakeholders to explore how a more diversified agricultural system in the Midwest could be more resilient and sustainable than the current corn and soybean-dominated system we have now. Mr. O'Donnell is also the owner of Recovery Agriculture LLC, which offers agricultural consulting services to farmers and organizations who want to transition to regenerative and organic farming systems. He has a BS in Mechanical Engineering from Purdue University and an MS in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's so good to have you. I'm familiar with a publication in which you are co-author that has to do with pesticide drift. And we're going to talk about some agricultural challenges that we've both experienced where we live. But first, I have to ask you, you've got degrees in mechanical engineering. How on earth did you become interested and involved in agriculture? Yeah, that's a, it's a question I often get. You mentioned I, I did my undergraduate studies at Purdue University. I worked in the engineering industry for a while, but then decided to pursue graduate studies, which took me down to Texas. And at that time, I was on a project, an EPA-funded project for my thesis work, and it had me looking at biofuels. So at that time, it was when Congress had passed what was called the Renewable Fuels Standard, which mandated an increase in the volume of biofuels in our transportation system, things like ethanol and biodiesel. I was doing kind of a historical policy analysis and infrastructure analysis of previous transitions in our fuel system, and then also doing life cycle analysis of different biofuels, looking at impacts of the production of biofuels compared to conventional fossil-derived fuels. And as I was studying this, I had to better understand conventional corn and soybean production being the feedstocks for corn ethanol and soy biodiesel. And it really had me asking a lot of questions from a sustainability lens about the overall sustainability of just the production of corn and soybean 
and whether that made sense as a substitute for fossil drive fuels and the implications of those kinds of decisions. And from that, just learning about agriculture, I became fascinated because I was never really exposed to it prior to that in my life. And, you know, I'm nearing my mid-20s at this point, and I just dove in and started to learn as much about agriculture as I could. I started working as a volunteer at a certified organic vegetable operation in Austin, Texas, and it just went from there. I, I finished my studies there, finished my master's degree in engineering, but made the decision to continue pursuing my interest in agriculture and never looked back. Well, I have to go back and ask you about the biofuel issue, because we're facing such a crisis with climate and fuels and now the war in Eastern Europe. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about biofuels? Are they a good idea? Well, I think that there's still potential with biomass-derived energy resources. But this all-in putting all our cards or putting so much the emphasis, which results in investments and infrastructure development behind corn-based ethanol being the primary biofuel that we have as a substitute or a blend in our gasoline for transportation, I think is concerning. And if you look at the research showing some of the outcomes, how our agriculture has evolved since the RFS was put into place and mandated ethanol use increased, we can see the implications of that policy change in terms of overall landscape change, Mm. more acres in corn production specifically for ethanol and a lot of the impacts of that landscape level change. So I haven't spent time studying biofuels much further beyond that work in graduate school. Sure. Uh, I decided to focus more on farming and alternative and sustainable and organic farming systems. So I haven't stayed up in the world of biofuels, but I think there's a lot of research uh, in the peer-reviewed literature to suggest that this major focus on corn-based ethanol as a major biofuel here in the United States has problems. Yeah, I've read concerning articles as well. And as a dietitian, you know, I look at it as, okay, what do we need to be eating? What are we growing? And if my numbers are correct, I think the last figure I saw was that 40% of the corn crop was going towards ethanol. And yet from a nutritional perspective, what I see missing from the diet is that we need many more of what we call specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, and less of the corn and soy going to both animal feed as well as the fuel market. But that's just my perspective. You may have additional thoughts. Oh, I agree that we need to see more diversification in our agricultural landscape for a variety of reasons that, as you say, provide people with access to more diverse and healthy food options, particularly fresh produce. But there's a lot of pieces that go into that beyond just the production aspect, aspect but also access and people's knowledge of how to work with a more varied kitchen, right? right. <laughs> a more varied diet uh, and how to incorporate that into people's daily lives of consuming a better diet. Exactly. So all the way from, from the farm level production up to how people work with different foods in their kitchen and incorporate them into their lifestyle. There's right. a lot there. But I agree that at the farm level and in the agricultural landscape, having space for more diverse crops, particularly horticultural and human food crops, I think is very important. Well, I thought it was interesting that you are helping farmers transition away from the corn and soybean dominated system. In addition to the fact that it's not biodiverse enough, and we know that true regenerative and sustainable agriculture systems are really based on biodiversity, both soil life as well as plant life. I'm curious to know why most of the farmers who reach out to you are wanting to make a switch out of that system. Well, a lot of my work in working with farmers who are looking to transition to new systems of production from conventional corn and soybean was in a previous role that I had with Purdue Extension as a statewide organic agriculture educator. And so in that case, I served as a resource within the state of Indiana to develop educational programs focused on organic agriculture production 
And much of that was focused on field crops, which are things like grain and oil seed. And I also served as a contact for farmers to get more information. And so many of the farmers I spoke with, worked with conventional corn and soybean farmers looking to transition into certified organic production. Oftentimes this was transitioning to still do grains and oil seeds, corn and soybean, but also adding other crops because under organic management systems, trying to produce just corn and soybeans becomes problematic and not really sustainable. You run into problems with pests and weed management, nutrient management, uh, and soil health, trying to just produce those two summer annual row crops. So we look at more diversified production systems, more diverse crop rotations to incorporate small grains like wheat, barley, oats, cereal rye, and other crops like sunflowers, peas, buckwheat, adding diverse cover crops and hay and pasture in rotation with grazing animals on the landscape. So still maybe producing corn and soybeans because there's a lot of demand for organic corn and soybeans to raise organic poultry and feed dairy cows and lane hens. So there's still a lot of demand for organic corn and soybeans, but typically in those systems, we're looking at much more diverse cropping systems. Listening to you talk, I'm thinking of the word coexistence, this idea that oh, sure, you know, there's room for all kinds of agriculture. We want the conventional systems to operate next to the organic ones. But what I've learned is that really coexistence is impossible when you have farming systems that use herbicides and an increasing number of herbicides as weeds develop resistance, where those herbicides drift. And they may drift onto an organic soy and corn operation, or they may drift on an organic specialty crop farm. And by specialty crops, that embraces nuts and fruit trees and vegetables, you know, the kinds of foods that I recommend that consumers eat more of. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about that concept of coexistence and what you've seen in the field. Can they coexist? Well, I I guess I would clarify on coexistence is it's not just conventional production causing problems on organic grain or specialty crop production, but this can impact any farm-to-farm type of production, whether it's conventional fruits and vegetables, right? They could be damaged by some of the pesticides used on conventional grain operations. Or now, as we've seen, you mentioned herbicide resistance, and there's more technologies to try to manage this and delay or slow the continued development of herbicide-resistant weeds, is that we have new technologies with different herbicide resistance traits that are causing grain to grain, conventional grain to grain farm coexistence problems, where a perfect example is the newer dicamba resistant soybean technologies, where we've seen just a deluge of drift damage issues across the soybean producing states, where a farm that's chosen to adopt dicamba resistant soybean technology causing drift onto neighboring grain farms, soybean farms that have chosen not to adopt those technologies and therefore their soybeans are not resistant to dicamba and can be damaged. So this coexistence issue impacts all farms regardless of their production system or crops that they produce, but it is a particular concern to certified organic operations that can't use these synthetic inputs and of concern to those specialty crop growers whose crops are highly sensitive to a range of herbicides and may not be able to be sold if they're contaminated with other types of of pesticides that they're not labeled for. So this coexistence issue, it affects all of agriculture. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Michael O'Donnell. He is the Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms in Wolcott, Indiana. He's also the Regenerative Agriculture Coordinator for the Diverse Corn Belt Project in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University. And we are talking about Mr. O'Donnell's experience, both working through Purdue Extension and some of the issues that he saw there, as well as his own experience on the farm in the Midwest. So from my perspective, if COVID taught us nothing, it was that we needed certainly more resilience in our agriculture systems. We needed more regionalized systems because 
when supply systems break down for any number of reasons, then we see food supply shortages. And what I thought was so interesting nationally is that during COVID, supermarkets may have had empty shelves, but the farmers markets were thriving because there was a local food system that was responding to increased demand and farmers did very well in a local community. But what I see happening at my market and to the farmers that I speak with is that they do suffer from drift. And I've actually had some farm friends who can no longer farm or at least produce the kinds of crops and the quantity that they were able to sell prior to having a drift incident. And I'm thinking of a farmer in particular in Iowa who I interviewed, Rob Fox, who was growing peppers for his community. And I love a good red pepper. They're loaded with vitamin A, vitamin C. When they're fresh, they are fabulous. But he was a victim of drift from neighboring farms using, again, he was in the Midwest. So there was the corn and soy rotation. There was lots of herbicide spraying going on. And he suffered from drift to the point where he can no longer produce foods in the quantity that he could and gain that economic benefit because of drift incidents. And I know that you've experienced drift as a farmer yourself. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your own experience? Sure, yeah. So my family and I had our own small farming operation from about 2012 through 2019. It started in 2012. We weren't really doing commercial sales in 2012. We were kind of getting ourselves established, getting our growing space set up, working with our soil, getting infrastructure like, you know, the area that we would wash and pack produce and store equipment and supplies, getting that fixed up and prepared and, and just figuring out exactly where what direction we wanted to go with our farm. But we were growing. And then we developed into a small commercial vegetable operation, what I refer to as market farming. We raised vegetables year round on a half acre of ground. It doesn't sound like much, but You manage it intensively and have really intensive crop rotation and growing in high tunnels to be able to produce and harvest crops in the fall and the winter. And it keeps you quite busy and you can produce quite a bit of food on on a half acre. We also raised uh, pasture raised poultry and laying hens. So we have chicken and eggs also to sell to our customers. It was mostly direct retail through farmer's market, uh, local independent grocer, and a little bit with restaurants. So we were like the farmer that you mentioned in Iowa. We were mostly surrounded by corn and soybean production. and But actually the first year when we were getting things set up, our first experience with drift was in 2012. We were actually surrounded by pumpkins, commercial ornamental pumpkins. And that was an interesting experience where we were kind of learning the environment and what was going on around us. But with the pumpkins, those were sprayed once they started setting and developing fruit every week, just about on the dime. At dusk, once honeybees, which pollinate the crop, would go up into their hives, and they would spray some kind of combination of fungicides and or insecticides to try to protect this crop from foliar disease and insect damage. And so we we had to essentially endure these pesticide applications every week for about a seven or eight week period until that pumpkin crop was ready for harvest. And the nature of that crop and the timing in the evenings, the whole area would essentially be bombed out with these pesticides. And we would just, on those evenings, plan to put our, our two sons into the house, close the house up, and just not be outside for that evening. So it was a pretty unpleasant experience. I mean, just our ability to be out and operate on our own farm without being exposed to this stuff each week for one weekday evening each week for seven or eight weeks was pretty disruptive to our life, mm. um, let alone any other potential impacts and whether these the residues of these were ended up on our crops. Right. So then it kind of went from there. From there on out, we we're always surrounded by corn or soybeans. Uh, we experienced some damage from glyphosate from a what's called a burn down application. It's applied. It's a soil applied herbicide application prior to the crop being planted to clean up the field, kill the weeds that are there. I worked directly with the applicator in that case and they filed a claim with their insurance provider and, and we got a, a payment for the damages that we estimated to our crops. Then in, I think in 2015, we experienced damage again from a burn down application. And at that point we decided that we, we needed to get a third party involved. So we filed a complaint with 
the agency that deals with pesticide regulations here in the state of Indiana called the Office of Indiana State Chemist. And they investigated this and found that the applicator was in violation based on their herbicide application they made and the damage that resulted on our crops. But the applicator was issued a warning. Mm-hmm. The the compliance officer, I, I looked, at, I reacquainted myself with that report, and the, the compliance officer stated that consideration was given to the fact that this was the applicator's first violation of similar nature. So I guess since the first time that this applicator had caused pesticide damage like this, or at least someone had reported and reported it, they decided that they'd just issue a warning. You know, and it kind of, it just sort of elevated from there. In 2016, we experienced drift from two different applicators that surrounded us on the exact same afternoon. We filed a complaint with the state chemist office again, and both applicators were found to be in violation. But once again, <laughs> both applicators were issued a warning. There was no other citation, no fine or anything. And in this case, the compliance officer stated that consideration was given to the fact that there was a good faith effort to comply. To this day, I'm not quite sure what that means, Yeah. Uh, particularly particularly in the case of the applicator who this was the second year in a row causing us damage to our crops. It kind of went from there. We experienced drift again in 2018, again in 2019. I think in 2018, they couldn't attribute it to any applicator and said it was likely atmosphere deposition of 2,4-D, so essentially background levels of 2,4-D that impacted our crops. Um, And again, in 2019 was a third applicator that caused damage to our crops, and, and that applicator was given a warning as well. So... It caused a lot of stress and anxiety for me and my family at the time, you know, every year during the springtime when it'd be, you know, when farmers would start doing burn down herbicide applications and later in the season with post, what's called post-emergence herbicide applications once the crop is established, we would just have a lot of anxiety. Anytime we'd see a sprayer or, or hear a sprayer going down the road or see one pulling into a nearby field, we would just really elevated our anxiety fearing that we were going to go through the same thing again, Groundhog's Day, and anticipating damage. I would become hyper-focused on wind speed and wind direction and temperature. Is there a temperature inversion? And just became hypersensitized to it. And, and in my work at the time with extension, traveling around the state, I started to become very uh, attuned to seeing drift damage in the landscape, whether it's to crops or trees or landscapes, gardens, and just starting to see that it's, it is quite a common occurrence. And in our case, when we tried to assert ourselves or stand up for ourselves within our community, it became a major source of stress to us yeah. um, and was not received well by the applicators or the farmers that were causing this problem. And it, it was a very stressful time for me and my family. Yeah, and I'm going to assume that you are no longer farming that half acre that was very productive. Yeah, that farm business we put to bed in around 2019, 2020. I'm sure your customers were very disappointed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when we stopped going to the farmer's market and then stopped doing on-farm sales, we had several customers that you know were longtime customers of ours, and they came to rely on us for their source of fresh high quality, organically produced. We didn't, we weren't certified organic, but used organic practices. And they, they were so happy to have a farm like this in their area, within their community that they could rely on and have a relationship with. And to have that go away, they were quite disappointed and and saddened by that. The reason for ending the farm is not fully attributable to the drift issue, but I can tell you that that was a major factor in our decision. Right. Well, from my perspective, you know, someone who works in public health, it's a real shame because this is the kind of food that I am encouraging people to seek. And if our farming community cannot produce the kinds of foods that every single health organization recommends that we eat more of, and especially when we think about, okay, let's re-regionalize our food system, the fact that you as a farmer could not make it because of these challenges raises a big red flag for me and it's really why I wanted you to be my guest to help people understand the challenges that producers face when trying to bring to market the kinds of foods that we have certainly seen a much greater demand for. Sure, yeah. You know, and that made me think one of the things that really is ironic 
is that one of the applicators that caused drift on our crop, drift damage on our small farm, was actually a specialty crop producer themselves and have faced problems of drift on larger scale specialty crop production. So the, the irony was never lost on me in that in that situation. Right. Uh, but it does present challenges. And uh, when, for example, I mentioned the dicamba tolerant or dicamba resistant soybean technologies that were introduced a few years ago that have caused, you know, a deluge of drift problems and a lot of these pesticide agencies in different states just being inundated with investigations. You know, some of the specialty crop companies and farmer organizations stood up and tried to raise awareness and concern about the adoption and approval or the approval of these technologies and tried to push back on that because of their because of exactly this concern that the adoption of this type of technology would threaten the viability of their specialty crop industries. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael, we are out of time. And so what I am going to do is I'm going to provide a link to an excellent guide sheet that you wrote with your colleagues at Purdue through extension called Options for Dealing with Pesticide Drift Incidents. And we understand that every state is different in how they handle these kinds of drift incidents, but this is a good basis for at least knowing what can be done universally. And first and foremost, it's a help in understanding what to look for in terms of drift damage. Do you want to end this program with one last piece of information or one last observation that you want to make sure our listeners know? I would. You know, people who listen to the story probably think I might be bitter, hold resentments about these drift incidents that I experienced and some of the stress and emotional strain and financial losses that we experienced with our small farm. But, you know, at this point, I don't hold resentments towards the farmers that did this or do this. I've long since worked through that internally, but I don't condone, I don't condone pesticide drift by any means. And I, and I don't feel that it's an appropriate cost or externality of our current agricultural system, given how it can impact other farmers, rural residents and, and natural areas and ecosystems. I just feel that drift, pesticide drift, is more or less another symptom or externality of our current agricultural system. It results in, I mean, if we just look at the, the burden of investigations on these pesticide, these state pesticide agencies and employee time and sampling materials and lab analysis to investigate drift incidents, particularly with the spike in dicamba drift incidents, you know, the taxpayer is on the hook for this right. because it's state agencies that conduct these investigations. But, you know, farmers are in working within a system or paradigm that to them is is normal. They, they grew up in it. It's what they know. And it's very difficult to change. And, and that's one of the reasons why I don't lay the blame 100% directly at the feet of the farmers, simply because of you know the system they're operating in. We have a what's become a very simplified agricultural landscape. It's managed very efficiently, in quotes, I, I, I say. And there's a lot of what you could call simplification or reinforcing factors that result in a sort of lock-in of this simplified system of production. And it really limits the ability of farms to diversify things like our crop insurance system, lending, ag lending practices, our research and extension system that really focuses on supporting you know, the research dollars devoted to focusing on for example, corn and soybean production systems. Right. And we have simplified markets and infrastructure. So trying to diversify out of this system and reduce our reliance on things like herbicides and other pesticides that result in drift can be very challenging for farmers. And it's uncertain and has risks. And I've learned a lot from the perspective of farmers operating on large acreage in our current agricultural paradigm. So with all that said, I think there's a lot we can do to support farmers in transitioning to more diversified systems. I know that we can't get into that right now. No, we've um, got to close, unfortunately. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Michael O'Donnell, Farm Certification Manager at Living Prairie Family Farms in Wolcott, Indiana. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. Thank you.
Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Danielle Reed. She is the Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The center's mission is to improve health and well-being by advancing the scientific understanding of taste, smell, and related senses. Dr. Reed holds a PhD in psychology from Yale University, and her research interests focus largely on why people differ in their sense of taste and smell. However, recently she has been studying person-to-person differences in the loss of taste and smell as a result of COVID-19 as part of the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research, and we'll be talking about that today. Welcome, Dr. Reed. It's great to have you. Yes, likewise. I'm super happy to be here. Well, I have to ask you, how did you initially become interested in sensory research? It really started with my interest in just why people are different one from another. And I was doing some work in the psychology department at Yale, and one of the professors there gave me this little clear liquid to drink. And I put some in my mouth, and to me it was like water. And I was like, I don't really see what the big deal is here. And then I turned my head, and it was clear that other people who were sampling it were really like convulsing. It was so bitter. And I kind of had that aha moment of like, this is a really a profound difference between people and it's really worth knowing more about. So that sort of was the first chapter in a long story about exactly why it is that people are different one from another. Well, COVID-19 has been such an interesting case study on so many levels. But when I learned that one of the key factors in identifying whether or not you might have COVID is this loss of taste and smell, I immediately thought of some of my own experiences working as a clinical dietitian early in my career where people suffered severe losses, mostly related to disease or the treatment of disease. And I'm thinking specifically of cancer therapy and cancer drugs where they would say that meat suddenly tasted metallic or the coffee that they loved for so long suddenly tasted terribly. And so the thought of losing our sense of taste and smell seems really frightening to me when I consider how much I love food and breathing in the aromas of beautiful scents. Yeah, it's really one of those things where it occupies this sort of strange middle ground because people often, when they think about losing their sense, their senses, like they think of hearing and sight and how much that would really remodel their whole lives if they had to accommodate those losses. Whereas sense of smell and the sense of taste You know, and there's a lot of pleasure that comes with that. And so what we're, one of the things we're losing when we lose our sense of taste and smell, or if it starts to distort, which is what you were alluding to with the cancer patients, is this loss of quality of life, the enjoyment. And so one of the things that's really vexing for people that are undergoing this, albeit if it's chemotherapy or if it's COVID, is this sort of strange sense that they shouldn't be complaining about it because after all it's only quote-unquote just the sense of taste and smell but actually it's really a profound loss for people yeah I totally agree with you I think it would be hugely profound and yet I too think that we take a lot of things for granted including those senses until we lose them and I remember learning about how people are attracted to other people like partners and how much smell is involved with that. And then of course, just the whole food realm and how our digestive enzymes actually can start, you know, we start producing digestive enzymes with just the smell of food being cooked. So this really must have a profound physiological impact on our nutritional health and overall sense of well-being. Yeah, you make a really great point. And just to pick up on that, so. One of the things that we think about Pavlov's dog, right? The bell rings and his dog smells the wonderful meat aroma and that gets the salivation really moving. And so one of the things that people who have lost their sense of taste and smell report is that not only do they not take pleasure in the food, but they don't feel well when they eat. 
And, you know, part of that is that if you can imagine just a hunk of food or whatever sort of showing up in your stomach without all of the time to prepare and to be ready for it, the salivation, the, you know, peristalsis, all those things, that's really one of the things that makes it really unpleasant for people that have lost their sense of taste and smell to eat things. That's fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought of peristalsis, and that's the muscular movement that extends through our digestive tract to move food through. And so you're right, the body can't prep and handle food as well. I'm curious now even to think about absorption that might be compromised because of the loss of something as quote-unquote simple as the loss of taste and smell. Exactly, and I'm sure we've all had the experience, like I certainly had this experience when I was, you know, a new working mother and I had like three minutes to eat my lunch, you know, before I had to race off to do the next thing. And I would just wolf down my food. I wouldn't savor it. I wouldn't chew very carefully. I wouldn't smell. I wouldn't really take the time to relax. So I just sort of shove it in as fast as I could. And then it was on to the next thing. And of course, you know, I just didn't feel good afterwards. And I think that what happens with people who have lost their sense of taste and smell is that that sort of sensation, but writ much larger. It's sort of a bigger problem that is just that when we don't necessarily relax and enjoy our food. Right. Well, I have heard that people with COVID, some have lost significant amounts of weight just because they've lost the pleasure of eating and they just don't eat. Right. So you that is really an important thing. But, you know, there's another side to that. So what we see is actually there's two camps here. So we see the people that are just as you described. They can't taste their food. They can't smell their food. They're not interested in eating. They kind of just get by with the minimum, and they get undernourished, and they lose weight, and they become often frail. So that's definitely one path that people have. But then there's this other path, and that's people who they're feeling like they're just sort of searching for something. that They're searching for that satisfaction with food that just never comes. So particularly people that have lost their sense of smell, but they still have a little bit of taste, so they can kind of get the sugar, they can kind of get the salt, and they're trying to get that satisfaction, so they eat, 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 and they just don't, it just doesn't satisfy. And so those people we find are actually getting heavier and they're putting on weight. So we see this sort of split of these two different camps of how people respond. Yeah, that is so interesting. Well, I just saw the numbers. At the time of this interview, we have surpassed 78 million people in the United States who have contracted COVID-19. And in preparation for this interview, I was reading a little bit about what some of the statistics are, and I saw that, what is it, about 77% of people with COVID-19 experience smell loss. What is the percentage of people who will get some recovery? We think about 85% of people are going to get back to just about where they were before they had COVID. So I wouldn't say it's fully recovered, but they're close. They don't necessarily notice their daily lives are different. But of course, the devil of that statistic is we think that there's about 10 or 15% of people who fall in the other direction, which is they have what we call sustained um, taste and smell loss. Now, we don't like to say permanent, because who knows? Permanent, we don't know. Right. Um, but what we can say is things are not improving. And the sad thing is, is that for a lot of these folks, it's not necessarily only that they're not getting their sense of taste or smell back, but they're getting what they're getting back is a little bit of something, but it's distorted. Mm. So they have something called parosmia in the sense of smell. So it's like this sort of perversion of different odors. And the thing that's the major offender, there are two things that are just heartbreaking. One is that people often report that coffee smells almost fecal and Ugh. has this very, I know, it's tragic. And the other thing people are reporting to us is that their pets are not smelling good. Now, we, we know that dogs and cats don't necessarily, quote unquote, smell good, but it's a very soothing and pleasant odor for those of us that love our animals. And then there's somehow this distortion that just makes the pets smell vile. And that's also just got its own ramifications, not in the food realm, but just in the quality of life realm. Sure. I wonder how many people are suddenly also offended by their partners. 
Yes. You know, honestly, I find people are much less forthcoming about that. I have a feeling if we were able to interview people confidentially and in a more private way, we might learn a lot more about that. But certainly people are more willing to, to talk about how their pets are putting them off. And of course, as I said, the coffee just comes up as a chronic lament among people. Oh, yes. Well, on your website, on the Monell.org website, there are some strategies for understanding a lot about taste and smell. You've also got a great tool for parents to use with children about talking to your child about smell and taste, which I thought was fabulous. Tell me a little bit about that. One of the things that we really noticed when we started doing this research is how neglected it is to study the sense of taste and smell in children. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we're very used to having our kids have their eyesight measured and certainly their hearing measured as part of sort of the onboarding process, if you will, for the young. But we never do that for taste and smell. So I would imagine that for most of us who are parents, and particularly if your parents are very small children, you have no idea if your kids can taste or smell in a normal range. And so given that we don't know much about the healthy child in that realm, like there's no norms and standards and there's no tests, then when we're trying to talk to kids about their COVID symptoms and to try to assess the loss of taste and smell, that can be hard because those kids are not necessarily used to that kind of conversation. You know, they're used to having sort of a medical exam, but it never includes those kind of questions. And so. Mm-hmm. One of the things we are trying to do is just to socialize the idea about talking about taste and smell with children. And so then we're able to then evaluate how the kids are dealing with these symptoms of taste and smell loss. Now, what I will say is is that the, you know, there's always a little bit of a silver lining to every black cloud. The one silver lining is, is that we notice that for kids who are very young, they do tend to retain their sense of taste and smell with COVID at a higher rate. So maybe only 5 or 10% are really suffering these losses, but that changes as the kids get older. And so by the time they're adolescents and young adults, they're up to the same rates as adults are, at least for the alpha and the gamma beta variant, so the initial of the COVID variant. Mm. Help me understand, I think the Omicron did not have as much smell or taste loss as the other variants. Is that correct? Yes, and we're just recently kind of untangling that question because one of the problems we were grappling with is, of course, people that have Omicron are often also vaccinated. So we were untangling, like, do you get benefits of being vaccinated or is Omicron just less of a bad actor? And we finally have enough data to say for sure that with Omicron, we're only seeing about five to six, maybe seven percent of people are reporting that smell loss. So it's definitely a lot better in that regard than, like, for instance, the very early, the alpha and the gamma beta, those guys in the very beginning of the pandemic. Great. Okay. That's good to know. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are joined today by Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia. And we are honing in on COVID-19 and all of the taste and smell issues related to that particular virus. Of course, we will dive into some other reasons for smell and taste loss, but I am so curious to know what the mechanisms are. How do viruses, and in particular COVID-19, affect our smell and taste? What exactly goes awry? Do you know? We know a little bit. So here's what we know so far. So there are cells that are in inside of our nose, and we call it the roof of the nose. So if you just stuck your finger right on the bridge of your nose, right between your eyes, and you just touch that part of your face. If you went back a little bit, that's something that's called the roof of the nose. So the inside of the nose is very top, and there's a little patch up there called the olfactory epithelium, which just means that's the place where the smell cells are located. And these cells are really interesting because part of those cells face the nose, so they have like sort of a foot in the mucus of the nose, but then they also go into the brain. So it's sort of like a little highway into the brain. 
And we think that what happens is when the virus, the cells that are the sort of nurse cells, so the cells that look after these special sensory cells, see the virus, they send a big alarm bell. And that alarm bell essentially kind of rolls up the drawbridge and tells those smell cells to shut down, basically trying to protect the brain. And so, but when that, that's in a very abrupt thing. And so when you talk to people who have, have had experienced this COVID-associated smell loss, one of the things they'll often say is like one minute they were fine and the next minute they couldn't smell. It's very quick onset. Wow. And so those cells are really just trying to protect, we think, just trying to protect the brain. So that's what happens. And of course, the big problem is, is that when the enemy is gone, you know, when the virus is clear, it seems like for some people, their cells don't know that that war is over. It's sort of like you can imagine if the soldiers are still on the battlefield, but the enemy's not there and the soldiers are just making problems for the rest of the group. So it sort of has that feeling. It's sort of like the cells are still fighting, even though the virus is gone long after. And so that seems to really keep those cells not working. Mm. Well, you've got a great visual on your website that shows, I guess it's a cross-section of the skull where our olfactory system sits. And when you look at that, you realize just how complex those senses are and how unique it is that they work together so intricately. Absolutely. And so one of the things that's so interesting is that the smell loss, as you said before, is not so uncommon for other things, but taste loss is very uncommon. And so we were very, very surprised. And actually, there's been a lot of a um, little bit of infighting among the scientists about whether there's gen- what we would call genuine taste loss with COVID. And it turns out that when we make careful measurements, that people actually do lose, lose their sense of taste, like sour, sweet, salty, bitter, umami, that sense. And so what happens is that the brain doesn't get any information about flavor. So not only do you have not have your sense of smell through the nose, you're not getting anything from the tongue either. And so the brain is just left with this big void when it's trying to process information about food, for instance. Well, I have seen ads for things like smell kits in an attempt to help people get their sense of smell and taste back. Can you talk a little bit about the therapies that might be helpful to people who have lost their smell and taste? So there's two schools of thought here. The first school of thought is what we would call smell training. And that is exactly what it sounds like, which is you in purposefully and mindfully, once or twice a day, smell a variety of odorants and think about it. You sniff deeply. If it says lemon, you think of the lemon. And it's essentially trying to reawaken those cells that have shut down. And what we know about smell training is is it works a little bit in some people. So it definitely is not harmful. So that's a big plus. won't hurt. And for some people it does help. But it's also really takes a lot of dedication on the part of the person doing it. Because smelling these bottles every day feel like you can't smell anything and it can feel futile. And so... One of the problems with smell training is just going the distance with it and keep working and keep doing it. And it's been hard to motivate people to stay with it, but it will help some people. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is to try to, if we can understand like why these cells are sleeping or shut down, we can try to reverse that process. So people are trying different types of drugs to try to improve this recovery process. and. The quick answer is nothing seems to be working at all, really, at the moment. So it's a very hard message for people that are frustrated and suffering because we don't have something that's even minimally effective. There's no drugs that are minimally effective that are known yet. Mm. Well, there are other cases where people can lose their sense of smell and taste. Anosmia, I believe, is the word for that. And there are several reasons. So viral infections, COVID being one, but head trauma, I hadn't thought about the impact of head trauma, as well as aging, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, exposure to toxic chemicals. So there are many routes to getting to that end point that people should be aware of. Absolutely. So head trauma is a really interesting case in point, because as I said, there's a connection between the nose and the brain 
And what I didn't tell you is that those very soft nerves go through these tubes of bone to get from the nose to the brain. And so if your head is hit abruptly, it's sort of like putting a very wet spaghetti noodle, soft noodle through a metal colander. And if you shake it hard, you kind of shear off that soft spaghetti. And that's what happens to those nerves that connect nose to brain. So head trauma is really, you know, football players are people that have that sort of really jarring head motion, automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents. This is a very common way to get smell loss. Now, some people's nerves will grow back and they'll reconnect, but many do not. And of course, the other things you mentioned, it seems that neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, one of the very early symptoms of that is often smell loss, premature smell loss, more than you would expect to see for somebody of a given age. That's interesting. All right, now you are helping to lead up something called the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research. Can you tell me about that and then how can we get people involved if they indeed have had some sort of taste and smell loss themselves? So I know that the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research is a mouthful. We call it GCCR, and that is an interesting formation. So in the very early days of the pandemic, like really literally the first few days, scientists who really care about taste and smell started emailing each other because they were so puzzled and interested in this potential symptom. And so really this organization is just came into being from nothing really of scientists banding together. So there's currently more than 700 scientists in 65 countries that are communicating with each other and trying to do research to help people to understand what's going on really. So that's the GCCR and we welcome all types of participation. We have a lot of people that are journalists and patient advocates and you know we're really working toward trying to better understand all aspects of this. Now the other thing people may really want to know about who are dealing with this issue for themselves is there is a new organization called STANA, that's the Smell and Taste Association of North America, STANA for short. It's a brand new organization, just as born, and they're trying to do two things. They're trying to form support communities for people who are dealing with this, because the feelings of isolation, that's really a huge thing for people, just getting people to talk to other people that understand what they're going through. That's a big part of it. But also, we really need to have people advocating for research because obviously we want to understand better so we can solve this correctly. You know, we can find real cures for this. So they're doing two things. So those are two organizations that would really welcome people's participation. Great. Is there anything else about COVID-19 specifically that you want our listeners to know? What I want people to know is don't forget. So people who are having sustained taste and smell loss, who, you know, they've had it for a year or two already, I know that my own living and lifestyle, I just want to put some of this behind me. I want to go and have fun and sort of forget about the pandemic. But I guess the main message is is that we're going to have people who are suffering with us for a long time. And I really want to make sure that their interests are protected and we really deal with people compassionately and thoughtfully who are trying to get better. Right. Well, your website, monell.org, that's M-O-N-E-L-L.org, is a fabulous resource for anyone who is going through this condition right now. And you've got a call for people who have had a cold or flu or COVID-19 to enter their data into this database. What specifically are you trying to tease out? We're trying to understand the subtle differences between what happens when you have taste and smell loss with a cold versus a flu versus COVID-19, because we're hoping that that will help us, point us in the right direction of how what's exactly wrong and how we can exactly cure it. And so that's one of the primary goals there. And we're really interested in having people fill in their data and to get that information from them. Okay, that sounds great. The other part of COVID-19 effects that I thought was so interesting. You've got some videos online at the website where there's a woman who was in her home and had a gas leak and had no idea. So not only are we missing out on quality of life, food and smells, we maybe take for granted just how much our sense of smell and taste 
protect us against toxins. Absolutely. Prime case in point is, you know, I go into my garage and I don't necessarily notice that my husband has spilt gasoline on the floor from the lawnmower if I can't smell it, right? So yeah. the smell is really a, it's a safety thing. Now, we often go to food right away because that's near and dear to most of our heart. But honestly, our sense of smell keeps us safe. I wanted to ask you with regard to toxicity, and this is moving beyond COVID-19 now. When I was a dietitian early in my career, I had learned that bitter flavors tend to indicate that there's a toxin present, whereas sweet tasting foods generally are safe. Is that true still today? Can we say that? Yes, there's a lot of truth in that. So many, many things that are, well, let's just back up and say, dose makes the poison. So a lot of things in our food and drinks are bitter and they wouldn't be poisonous unless we had a whole, whole lot of them. So caffeine's a wonderful example, which is a little bit of caffeine is a wonderful thing, but too much caffeine is a very bad thing indeed. And so bitter is a warning signal and we like it for kids because one of the things we think about kids as being so sensitive to bitter is it keeps them safe from eating too much of foods and non-food items that can poison them. And of course, things that are sweet, like fruits, are very rarely, very, very rarely in nature ever harmful. And so it's a really quick safety signal for what is and is not good to eat. And we're used to really knowing what's safe to eat just because we're a social species and we're taught that this is good and this is not good. But if you can imagine people foraging back in the day in evolutionary time and they just had to they were amongst plants they didn't know what was good and not good you really had to use that bitter detection to keep you safe right well i think covid19 has given us an opportunity to really appreciate better our senses of smell and taste and i love that you've got this resource for children and i remember when my own children were young we used to play a game where we'd put a blindfold on them and have them try to identify different foods and It's fun to do that from a smell and taste perspective. So you've got that resource online, and I want to lead people to that. Our time is up, and I just want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to say anything that I might have missed. No, I think we're in good shape. You've done a good job of covering all the material, so I think I'm good. Well, with that, we will have to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn, for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia. I will provide a website, www.monell.org, where people can learn much more. Thank you so much, Dr. Reed. This has been fascinating. You're entirely welcome.
for listening to KVOO Portland, 90.7 FM in the Portland metro area and all over the world at KBOO.FM. At KBOO, we're always busy bees preparing wonderful programming for you to enjoy. Now, during our spring membership drive, we need some money to go with that honey. Help us raise $56,000 by May 28th to support our efforts to pollinate the media landscape with locally produced, independent, people-powered community radio. Donate right now at kboo.fm slash give or tap the donate button in the KBOO mobile app. It's in the streets, it's in the streets. It's in the streets, it's in the streets. Check out Ear to the Streets of Portland with hosts Sequoia and Kayla every first and third Thursday of the month starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Listen in as we interview community organizers, speak on issues focused on Black Portland,